Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Pensions Experts fortnightly podcast. It is upon us, it is imminent, it's so close we could touch it. We've nearly, nearly made it and I speak of course not of the end of the Trump presidency, although I should say that we are recording this on Wednesday, January 20th, which is the day of the Biden inauguration. While the whole Washington press corps is discovering what it's like to fall in love again, we are gathered here today for a much more wholesome discussion about acts, actuaries and such like. And by the time you hear this, you will have woken up to yet another season of the made-for-TV psychodrama that is America. But uh, no, not the end of the Trump presidency. I mean, of course, the Pension Schemes Bill, or the Pension Schemes Act, as it should now be called, which is expected to receive royal assent this week. It feels like it has been kicking around for about as long as Joe Biden has been alive, which is to say a very, very long time indeed. But it is shortly to become law. Warnings abound that some of its measures may have unintended consequences. We will ventilate that issue and ask whether those fears are founded. Uh, Then an intriguing report prepared for the Institute and Faculty of Actuaries suggests that a shift change in the role of actuaries uh, that would see them take on the role of expert generalists, offering strategic advice to schemes that go some way beyond their current occupation as technical specialists. And uh, who better to take us through it than Jane Cotter, one of the paper's co-authors, of whom more in due course. And finally, in a bid to stop the erosion of small pots by charges and administration costs, the Department for Work and Pensions is to ban the charging of flat fees on pots worth under £100. A meaningful solution to the small pots problem or a sticking plaster on a wound that needs stitches, we will find out. I am Benjamin Mercer. I'm a reporter at Pensions Experts, and I am joined today by, as advertised, Jane Kohler, partner at ARC Pensions Law, and James Riley, partner at Isaiah, and president of the Society of Pensions Professionals. So thank you both very much for joining me. We will begin then, first up, the Pension Schemes Act. Uh, I, for one, am looking forward to the time, which is soon at hand, we hope, when we no longer have to talk about it in terms of hypotheticals, because it will shortly be the law. Um, It's a huge area. We could spend a whole episode going through it. We will not spend a whole episode going through it, but we will try and explore a couple of angles. And the first I thought we would discuss, especially as we have a lawyer present, is the warning from LCP about the far-reaching consequences of some of the new enforcement powers afforded to the pensions regulator, the expansion of certain definitions that could see practices once deemed normal in the day-to-day running of business deemed criminal, uh, with the potential for fines of up to £1 million levied against unsuspecting trustees, which will not be a happy thing to wake up to, I imagine. But Jane, you are our resident legal expert. So do you want to kick us off with these concerns from LCP? I mean, what are the concerns? Are they fair concerns to have? I think they are fair concerns. Normally, criminal law is drafted very precisely so people can regularise their conduct to ensure they don't commit the offence unless they want to. These pensions offences are extraordinarily widely drafted and are heavily dependent on an understanding of circumstance So no one will know for certain when they are conducting normal business, such as paying a dividend, restructuring some debt in the business, maybe selling off a small part of the business. Things that happen daily in in business, whether those could be criminal in future, if it has a serious impact on the ability of the scheme to pay accrued benefits or to pay what's known as an employer debt, Section 75 debt. And so it's true that the government has finally confirmed that those offences will only be forward looking. So it can only be investigated in respect of conduct after the act becomes an act and is in force. But nonetheless, it's going to be very difficult for company directors and also for trustees to be sure they're on firm ground. But one thing's for certain, burying one's head in the sand and pretending it's not there is not going to help. Because in order to defend yourself, if you find yourself in trouble, you need reasonable excuse. And the first thing you need to have for a reasonable excuse is to have knowledge of what it was that was going on. 
So pretending that there isn't an issue is not going to help. Is there a reason, Jane, do you think that it was so broadly defined? I mean, is that a deliberate thing or is it was it rather that it was quite broadly defined because some of them perhaps were not ever intended to be enforced? Is that perhaps a reason? I think it's been broadly defined because there are grades of conduct. And if one looks at the things that politicians and the regulator have become concerned about in past times, you know, it's a grade of conduct as to what exactly the outcome is. And if you tried to say in a very precise list what would be criminal and what wouldn't be, you would prevent people doing things they really should be doing. And then people who would be doing things you wouldn't want them to do would find a way around it. But the consequence is now everybody faces the possibility of of a criminal action if something goes wrong, because essentially none of these things will be criminal if if nothing goes wrong, because the regulator will have no cause to talk to someone about it. Is it the kind of thing that becomes more defined as it's tested? So maybe in the early days, the first people to get caught up will be especially unfortunate, but at least they'll be doing a service to the rest of us, do you think? I think that's right. And the regulator will need to produce more guidance about exactly what sort of conduct it is concerned about and it will investigate. But I think it is an area of law that sadly will develop by experience rather than by an analysis of the actual words on the page. James, if I can bring you in on this one, I mean, Jane mentioned the the need for more guidance from the regulator. What would you like to see the regulator do to issue clarity around this area? This is something that the Joint Industry Forum, which represents the industry bodies, has been concerned about throughout the pensions bill process. And we've repeatedly asked government to do more than provide regulator guidance, but we seem to be falling back on statements of in Parliament and the regulator guidance. And, And I think what we're looking for from regulatory guidance is something that is clear and really quite specific, because I think, you know, Something that is general will not help people interpret what is exactly meant by this, because I think, you know, that the point is we want something that's widely drafted. We need guidance that helps us really or helps companies, trustees, lenders, because it affects lenders to companies, etc., really understand what this clause is trying to achieve. So something really detailed is what we'd ideally like. The challenge is that's probably quite unlike a lot of regulator guidance we've had so far. And regulator guidance doesn't have a a legal standing. So there still remains a risk. But I think just to put a couple of things in context, perhaps, to give an example, actions don't have to be linked to the pension scheme. So you've got an issue with lenders to businesses who, by reclaiming the money that they have lent, could put the business in a worse position, less likely to pay pensions, and therefore, actually, they could fall foul of this guidance. So there is a real issue around business financing, potentially, here. And I think the other thing is, it's all very well to say we're trying to get the worst wrongdoing. But if you look at something much maligned like the European Human Rights Act, it's an example of legislation that perhaps now catches things it wasn't initially intended to. So the issue you have is if you draw something wide, it's all very well us having a discussion now and understanding what it means. You roll this on in 10 years' time and look at how the courts interpret it, it may be completely different. So as much clarity as possible is what we need over what is and isn't being intended to be caught. In the intervening time, until there is that extra clarity, I mean, can you foresee this leading to or almost creating a block on on necessary business activity if people are very scared that they might be caught up in a, a legal battle they weren't anticipating? I mean, is, is it going to provide maybe an impetus to delay things that they really should be doing at the moment? Or is, is that a minor concern? 
personally, I think that's a very legitimate concern. You know, directors of companies, good companies that work hard to achieve good outcomes for their businesses and their shareholders, as well as their pension scheme, also tend to be the people who want to stay very firmly on the right side of the law as do their suppliers, their finance people, and also their advisors. Because let's not forget, it's not just the decision maker that's in the firing line. All of the advisors potentially are also with them in the dock. You could find people being very scared to do things that are actually for the good of the business, and particularly M&A activity, restructuring and financing. could see companies with DB pension schemes really struggle to get through those processes. And ironically, some people might go bust over the next couple of years who otherwise wouldn't have done because people are worried about, are we committing an offence or aren't we? You can look at, you know, particularly private equity investors who now won't touch companies with defined benefit pension schemes because of the issues, you know, that previous regulator powers have thrown up. So there is history of the market redefining how it looks at companies with defined benefit pensions. And this has certainly has the potential to extend the groups who are very concerned about those, those companies. Now, I promised before we, we started the show that we wouldn't spend all the time on this topic talking about the jail aspect. So let's move on from the jail aspect, just finally on, on the subject of the act. James, just to begin with you, if I can ask you to pick one thing from it that you are excited about, um, or more positive about perhaps than, than the criminal measures, n- name me any, anything you like. Most excited about, and it's probably a bit hackneyed, but finally getting stuff around the dashboard in, because the dashboard's clearly a huge A well-implemented dashboard will be a huge positive for the industry as a whole and for members of pension schemes. So actually kind of getting the legislation, putting that in place is something to be hugely applauded. So it's another one of those things I'm looking forward never to having to write again when dashboards come in. But I'm sure there'll be a time when I don't have to do that anymore. Um, We will move on from that then to the, the second topic of the day, which is this shift change for actuaries proposed by Uh, The report previously mentioned prepared for the Institute and Faculty of Actuaries. Um, It would, if its proposals are implemented, be quite a radical departure, it sounds like, from the role hitherto played by actuaries. It would see them take on the role of a strategic advisor. Uh, Among its recommendations is a move away from triennial valuations uh, as the mechanism to set and review journey plans, as I understand it, in favour of a new methodology which is focused on improving member outcomes. Now, Jane, you co-authored this report, so you are ideal person to talk us through the, uh, the what's and the why's. If you want to to kick us off on that, please. Yeah, so this working group started out looking at consolidation and self-sufficiency. And, you know, as a group of actuaries, covenant advisors, I was the the legal advisor that was was on the group. And we quickly realised that actually we were looking at it in the way often pension people look at things, which is the process, rather than looking at where we're trying to get to. And so we kind of ripped up our initial brief and decided to look at, well, what do we really as pension professionals want to deliver in respect of our clients? And the answer is actually good member outcomes. That won't necessarily mean perfect member outcomes. And there will be some members who will get more than others. But the reality is we wanted all of our clients to put their best foot forward. And then we looked at how we might achieve that. And that was about setting goals but also ensuring that those who are advising in setting those goals are the right people. And the actuary is very much at the centre of a pension scheme. And the advisor, generally speaking, in most cases, who goes to all meetings, who is the closest to the trustees, and that actually to achieve good outcomes, the mindset of the actuary needed to broaden out so that they can strategically help trustees see who else they needed advice from to be able to achieve their objectives 
and actually kick the tires on their objectives and update them from time to time to make sure they were heading in the right direction. And ultimately, if the mindset of actuaries to be more strategic and bring in other parties, that includes administrators, includes covenant advisors and lawyers at the right time, then that would improve the chances of members getting the best outcome, which is what they were promised at the beginning. And just picking up on that, because I think we spoke when I was writing up the story about this particular report. And I believe you mentioned at the time that part of the reason for it, the reason it's necessary is to, in a way, undo some of the damage from underinvestment in, in pension scheme administration over the last sort of yes. 20 to 30 years, making actuaries almost formalizing a role as much as it is inventing a brand new one for them. I mean, do you want to explain us a little bit more about this underinvestment angle? So over the last 20 or 30 years, schemes have been effectively in runoff in one form or another. Whether they realise it or not, that is where they have been. They've had deficits, they've had cost constraints, and they've tended to focus, rightly, I think, at the beginning, on how to invest their way out of the issues that they had and how to minimise the call on their employers so they maximise their assets. Therefore, they underinvested in what their liabilities are. So they haven't invested in administration and data, the rules of their scheme and what the legal entitlements are to anywhere near the extent that they need to, to be sure that members are going to get what they're entitled to. Now, that's not the fault of schemes in many ways for the situation they're in. If you've got a burning fire, you don't do the filing, you put the fire out. But I think for many schemes... We are getting to the point where the fire is, you know, it's dying down. They need to get the filing done. They need to invest to get to their end game so they know exactly what they're supposed to be providing. James, do you want to, to come in on this? Do you have any thoughts on the, these proposals as outlined in the report? It, it, absolutely. I mean, first of all, I was, go- I was going to say it wouldn't have been a report from a group of actuaries without introducing some new acronyms. I was amused by TES, which apparently is target end states, but that probably wasn't as good as SWAS, which was scheme without substantive sponsor. Um, but sorry, I'm being a little bit mischievous here. I thought it was a really interesting paper, but I took a slightly different angle, I guess, speaking as an actuary. You know, absolutely think actually should be acting as a strategic advisor and think probably that the best are already doing that for many of their schemes. But I'd echo Jane's point that there's a point about you need to prepare, you need to do the filing, you need to get everything done, your data needs to be right, you need to properly understand the benefits that you're actually paying members and whether they are what's set out in the trustee, you need to do GMP equalization, there's a lot of dull stuff that you need to do if you are particularly if you're going to target you know insurance or a consolidator at the end of it so there is a real real need to tackle some of that i thought the member outcomes analysis speaking as an actuary was a really interesting way of looking at things what can you do as a trustee to kind of maximize the pension that members are getting which seems to fit squarely with how a trustee would want to look at these things but perhaps the bit that intrigued me most was this idea that it's all very well having your target end state, but you need to have a plan B because your sponsor covenant might change and you might be heading for insurance, but find that becomes unachievable. And actually, I think that's a really interesting and valuable thing that people probably aren't doing at the moment, which is saying, ideally, I'd like to get to A, but you know what? My plan B is this. And actually, I thought that was a really interesting thing to come out of the paper. So there's a huge amount of food for thought. And I think it is really helpful in kind of taking some of this debate forward. In terms of moving forward, then, so what is the next step uh, in terms of implementing the the recommendations made in this report? I mean, Jane, do you want to begin us with on, on this one? 
I mean, I think that now very much rests with the actuarial profession, but also a little bit with government as well, the DWP. I mean, I think actuaries need to digest the report and the profession itself decide the direction it wants to go in. But I think generally when we launched the report, there were very favourable responses from a good three, four hundred actuaries in the audience you know, in favour of this direction. And as James said, the very best actuaries already are doing a lot of this. You know, our challenge to government was, could you please sort out the law of what happens in respect of schemes that are funded above the pension protection fund level of liabilities, but their employer goes bust? At the moment, there are few options and they do not necessarily result in the members ultimately getting the best outcome they could have got. And so that whole area of law is drafted on the basis that if an employer becomes insolvent, every scheme will go into the PPF with a little bit of an extra afterthought just in case. We're now in a world where more and more schemes are funded well above PPF, but not there yet. We need a much better solution for those those schemes and those sponsors, including if they want to go to a consolidator, a far easier route into that consolidation vehicle than the tangle that they have to get through at the moment. I think another interesting point that's probably for the regulator and the actuarial profession comes to this idea of how you discount liabilities and, you know, the prevailing wish to discount it at guilt yields with with a fixed margin above it. And actually, you know, the paper recognises that that potentially creates volatility that doesn't really exist and whether the industry has an appetite to embrace that in, in a world where it has tended to move towards a fixed margin. And I don't know how that ties up then with the new regulator's code of practice on funding and the whole bespoke approach that's clearly been pushed out following a lot of industry feedback around bespoke approach being truly bespoke rather than benchmarked against the kind of more cautious previous approach. Not sure anybody quite knows how the bespoke model is going to be bespoke as yet. I mean, there was the interim report quite recently, wasn't there, from the pensions regulator, which basically just suggested that they will tell us later. But um, since they will tell us later, we'll probably discuss that later and we'll move on to um, the, the last topic of the day, which is the small pots. Uh, problem. It's another one of these. It's so reliable as a page filler for us. I'm not sure what we'll do once this problem's actually been solved. We'll have to find something else to write about. But um, the Department for Work and Pensions it has announced this ban on flat fees on pots worth under £100. It was welcomed to the mover, that is, at least as a stopgap solution. The erosion seemingly has been halted. Uh, I understand there was some doubt as to how impactful the measure will really be. Uh, we were looking to see whether Master Trust, for instance, might change any of their fee structures as a result of this. But from those I spoke to, I gather that any changes that are necessary will be quite minor. But the common urge from everyone I spoke to was that, yes, it's a good thing, but we now need to press on and tackle the actual small parts problem at its root. That involves some form of consolidation of one form or another. I mean, James, do you want to kick us off on this one? If we start with the measure before we move on to what perhaps the measure is not, I mean, was £100 the right threshold, do you think? Is there an argument that it could have been higher? I think I think there probably is an argument could be higher. I, I don't know what that higher figure would be, but £100 is what they've picked. It, it's clearly sensible to have some sort of limit on fixed charges for an amount, whether that amounts 100. I think, I don't know whether it was chosen because coincidentally, I think about 25% of pots fall under that £100 limit. So it made easy, easy sense. And so I think that not changing the default charge cap, not including transaction fees, all that makes perfect sense. I think it's difficult for anyone to disagree with it. You're absolutely right. It probably raises the question 
of that's not going to make the small pots go away because you're probably looking at pots that members aren't contributing into because it's not going to take long even on a low salary if you're contributing to a pension pot for that pot to be above 100 pounds so we're looking at small pots in relation to previous employments here there is a better way to deal with that it's just going to take time and it's going to be complicated if I were to ask you to, to pick the better way forward, I mean, there are all sorts of different consolidation models that, that we've been covering over, over the course of the, this debate around small parts. I mean, what would be your preferred solution to the problem? I don't have a preferred solution other than to say it can't be member initiated. There will be too much inertia with a member initiated solution to really address this problem. So we need something central and we probably therefore need something central to consolidate the pots into. But we need something that's automatic for pots of a certain threshold. Otherwise, the problem is never going to go away. And Jane, do you want to close us on, on this topic? I mean, if you were a complete novice to the area, you'd beamed down from space and you were told, this is what the problem is. There are too many small parts. Everyone broadly agrees, or at least agrees in broad terms on the solution, which is a form of consolidation. You've got the problem. You've got a range of solutions. Why has it not been solved yet? Is there any specific sort of regulatory or legal block to this? Or is it just the case that there are so many minutiae involved in the different options? It just takes us such a long time to work through. The law doesn't help with this, but the law is correctable. I think the problem is the practicalities. There's a piece around trying to maintain confidence of members and a, a feeling that taking people's choices away from them once they've got a part is not a good idea albeit that as people often had very little choice in getting this pot in the first place, trying to give them choices once they've actually got it doesn't seem to make a lot of of sense or be logical. And then there are issues around who's going to pay for moving the pots around. So you've got to pay to keep it, but then you've also got to pay to get rid of it. And then what's the right solution as to where it should go to and whether that's a good option or not, and whether someone could be criticised for putting money from the existing pot into another one, especially if there's a charge differential. But the reality is members are losing out as a consequence of not their pots not following them around. They're difficult to follow them, so therefore a consolidation, one place for them to go, it's got to be the right answer. And I think we just need to create a world where that happens. I agree with James, if it's down to the member to choose, they don't choose to go in generally, they don't choose their investment options, they shouldn't have any choice on the end destination of this small pot. If they want it, they should go and have, have to get it, but they shouldn't have a choice on it leaving their original employer's arrangement. Well, we've been waiting a long time for the solution. I imagine we'll be waiting a while yet for it to actually emerge, but some interesting options there to be sure. This then brings us to the close of the programme, except, of course, for the Always a Pensions angle. And I believe, James, that you have a topical one for us today. Absolutely. Well, you you started the top of the podcast talking about inauguration day, and that got the pension geek inside me looking at, well, what pension does the President of the United States get? And the, the answer apparently is £219,000 payable from the day they leave office, which I thought was interesting. Benjamin, you, you said that you'd heard that part of the um, point around impeachment was people were rather mischievously trying to see if they could get Donald Trump's pension removed. So there's a li- link to the impeachment as well. Of course, if he's as rich as he claims he is, he won't mind being denied the pension. But um, that, that's, that's a matter to be adjudicated by finer minds than mine. That is it for this week, then. Uh, join us in a fortnight's time. And we are due, I believe we're due, in a fortnight's time to be joined by Work and Pensions Committee Chair Stephen Timms to go through his agenda for the year ahead. Uh, we might even be welcoming the inauguration of President Kamala Harris by that point, such as the perils of electing very old men to high office in the middle of a global pandemic. But uh, either way, we will see you then. In the meantime, please like, subscribe and share the podcast as much as you can. 
A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.